My name is Carrie Landero. Steven, uh, you know, kicked us off a little bit earlier. You all got something to eat, something to drink. Uh, I just wanted to draw your attention to this artwork in the back. Uh, we have two pictures that the, the children were working on um, in concordance with the series, Words That Change the World. So you can just uh, see who the artists are. There's a little post-it with it um, and how they've been sort of thinking about this series as well. We're keeping them up here with us today. They have their own table dedicated to them. Um, so we'll just be up here with you as well. But please take a look at those before you leave today. Carrie. Okay, so, um, yeah, as, as Tim said, for those of you who've, who've been here before, you know this is something we do uh, every couple of months. And the idea is, uh, for those of you who are new to this, we don't want to just jump from one series to the next to the next without ever stopping to take stock of where we've been. And so the idea is to create a little bit of space in our lives for some theological reflection to ask, you know, do we really believe this? Does this make sense? Does this fit? How does this connect with our lives? Um, and it gives you an opportunity to sort of push back on some of the stuff I'm saying if, if, you, if you don't agree with it and, and feel free to do that as, as well. So as Tim said, what I'm going to do is just quickly give you a, a sort of a snapshot version of the last eight weeks and uh, then we'll have got some questions at the tables where we'll be able to uh, process it together. So here goes. Uh, eight weeks in about eight minutes. Somewhere in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. You know, the, Lord's, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and, and so it comes somewhere in chapter 6. And I want to start there because in many ways all of Jesus' moral instruction, including the Sermon on the Mount, flows into this prayer and then flows out of this prayer as, as well. Um, it's... Uh, if. if if you remember, we said that some people think of prayer as a sort of a control mechanism, a bit like magic or science, a way of manipulating and controlling our environment, either by giving instructions to God to get him to do what we want him to do, or getting instructions from God so that we can do what he wants. Uh, and, and imagine, we, we said, imagine what kind of control you would have on your environment if you could get God or some deity to do your bidding. Or imagine the control you could have if you could never make a wrong decision because every decision you made was the decision God told you to make. You had his perfect instructions. There'd be a lot of control. But Jesus immediately pulls the rug out from all of that kind of thinking and, and, and he attacks both of, both of those. Uh, he undoes the first way of thinking by, by, simply, by simply introducing his prayer like this. He says, when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like the pagans who think they will be heard because of their many words. Why not? He says, because God already knows what you need even before you ask him. So apparently prayer is not about giving instructions to God. But it's also not about getting specific instructions, detailed instructions from God, because there isn't a line in the Lord's Prayer that doesn't assume that at some level we don't already know what God wants. Right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, God wants us to manifest his kingdom and his will on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh, God wants us to, to uh, see each day as a gift from him and rely on him for our daily needs. Forgive us our trespasses. God wants us to forgive. God wants us to resist temptation. God wants to, us to turn away from evil. There really isn't a line in the Lord's Prayer that doesn't assume that at some level 
all of us already know what God wants. So if prayer is not about giving instructions to God or getting specific instructions from God, then what is it about? Well, if you remember the following week, we looked at the word Father in the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the first word. In the, in the Hebrew and Aramaic, the grammar makes that the first word, Father. Father. And the significance of this word goes well beyond any warm, sentimental, affectionate feelings we might have from thinking about being able to call the God of the universe our Father. It may create those kinds of sentimental, warm, affectionate feelings in you when, when, when you think about that. But maybe if you had a good childhood, if you didn't have a good childhood, then maybe it doesn't do that, right? Works for some people, not for others. But Jesus is using this word father here uh, in a very different way, on a different register. It actually has this political revolutionary overtones. Now, now that may sound very strange to, to people in 2020 in New York City. Political revolutionary overtones, the word's father, how can that be? But I think if you were sitting on the hillside in, in first century Palestine listening to Jesus talk and you heard him say this, I think you'd have been tuned in. Because what Jesus is doing is he's evoking two key moments in Israel's scriptures, in Israel's history, where they are encouraged to think of God as Father and to think of themselves as God's children. The first moment he's evoking is that moment, if you remember, where Moses marches into Pharaoh's throne room and he says, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. My son, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me. Moses, the archetypal prophet. The other place where the idea of God as father was echoed in Israel's life was this moment where God says to King David, the archetypal king, by the way, says to King David, I'm going to put someone, one of your descendants on a throne that is going to last forever, ruling over a kingdom that has no end. And he says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And so Jesus is saying, I am the new Moses. Get ready for the new Exodus. Jesus is saying, I am this new King David, the new king. Get ready for this new kingdom. Essentially, he's saying, I'm starting a revolution here. That's what it means to pray, our Father. And so the rest of the Lord's Prayer, and, and in fact all of Jesus' moral instructions surrounding the prayer and the Sermon on the Mount, is really about the shape that this revolution is going to take. He's, he's saying, look, this is what it means to start a revolution my way. And this revolution is all about expanding the circle of love and altruism. And Jesus starts with our neighbors. He says, love God and love your neighbors as yourself. And of course, one of, if you remember the, the story, one of the legal experts in the law comes to him and says, tries to find a loophole, which is what lawyers tend to do, right? And it's like, well, who is my neighbor really, right? He doesn't want to include certain people that he doesn't like. Maybe they're not his sworn enemies, but he despises them. He looks down on them. He doesn't want to include them in that circle. And if you remember, we said that we, we often play this game where we try to avoid the brunt of Jesus, the force of Jesus' words. We try to sidestep it and duck it uh, in our own rather radical way. 
Now, we don't do what that lawyer did and jump to the middle of the sentence and get all hung up about the word neighbor. We jump to the end of the sentence where it says, love, the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. And we get all interested in this word self. And we're like, oh, now I have to learn to love me. I need to learn to love myself first before I can learn to love any of these other people. So wait here, Jesus. And we go off on this sort of futile journey of self-discovery where I must learn to discover myself so that I can learn to accept and love myself, so that I can believe in myself, so that I can be true to myself. The journey begins and ends with myself, with, with me. Of course, this only works on the assumption that if we drill down deep enough, we will find some mysterious inner core which we can call the self. But if you remember, we we said that Jesus is not actually inviting us on some inward journey of self-exploration. That's a very POMO, you know, this is 2020 Western way of thinking, right? Jesus is not inviting us on some inner journey of self-exploration. He's inviting us to find ourselves standing in a network of relationship from which the self cannot be abstracted. He's inviting us to find ourselves in a network of relationships from which the self cannot be abstracted. He's saying, find yourself in a posture of love towards God and towards your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus expands the circle of love and altruism further, and he says, love your enemies. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we said that love your enemies is not simply another moral injunction. It is not just a uh, higher personal ethic. It's not just a better spirituality. Encoded in this command to love our enemies is the goal and the hope of Christian eschatology. Eschatology, if we said, is that idea that, that history is a meaningful series of events heading somewhere. That, that this is belief that God is actually working through history to lead history to its final particular destination. And while that may seem like a very strange and alien idea to talk about in 2020 in New York City, actually what we discovered is that most secularized Western thinking, secularized Western thinking is so utterly dominated by this idea. And that's why even without God, people still talk about progress. And people still talk about being on the right side of history. Underpinning Jesus' revolution is the belief that God is taking history to this place where we will be reconciled to God and to each other where the circle of love and altruism is expanded to include our neighbors, to include our enemies, so that we no longer have any enemies. And to refuse to do this is not simply to break a moral command or to be less spiritual somehow. To refuse to do this is simply to show that we have not quite understood where everything is going. Okay, that's where we've been the last uh, eight weeks or so. Um, and now if you want to grab uh, some more coffee or bagel, whatever, please do that. You've got 60 seconds and then we'll start, uh, start our conversations. Oh, just to, just to also say, uh, the parameters are, look, if you, if you don't want to 
talk. You don't have to. Feel free to participate by listening carefully. That, that's legitimate. Don't feel pressured to say anything. If you do have something great to say, say it and then let three or, three or four other people or two or three other people respond to what you've said before you jump in with your next brilliant idea. Um, and uh, the other thing is, just feel free. This is, you should, there's no questions that are too hostile, no ideas that are too threatening. Uh, if you don't agree with any of what I've just said, then, then say so. And this is your time to, uh, to, to as I said, push back and, and uh, offer your own thoughts on, on all of this. So uh, there you go. Uh, grab more, more coffee and stuff, and uh, we've got some questions uh, in the middle of the table.